It truly is a joy to be with you today uh, to open up God's Word. My name is John Stead. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have been given the daunting task by the elders and by John Rourke to actually try to teach five chapters today. So this indeed is my Goliath, and I hope to uh, slay Goliath here uh, by preaching five chapters, which, by the way, is going to be in overview form. We will not be able to see all the great riches and truths that are in these uh, texts. But we are in the book of 1 Samuel. And the title of this sermon series is called The King is Coming. And we are teaching out of the Old Testament to set up uh, an extensive study in the book of Matthew come Christmas. And John's going to be tackling that and we look forward to it. And the book of Samuel, we should read the book of Samuel and study it with great hope. Understanding that what is being taught here is pointing to the great King, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ must come from a kingly line, specifically from King David. In this, we will see a couple things. I won't be able to tackle it extensively, but we're going to see God's uh, theocratic design for monarchy within the nation of Israel. We're going to see a negative example of this in Saul, who was anointed king by God. But then we will see a positive example of it by looking at David. But ultimately, the book of Samuel is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to be the aim today. I want to help you see, by looking at David and all that takes place, I want you to see the sovereign hand of Yahweh. We're going to see that he is sovereign over choice, over who he chooses to be king. We're going to see uh, that Yahweh is a God that produces the sovereign victory and that Yahweh is our sovereign love. Now the name that I will use for the Lord in the Old Testament is the name Yahweh and that name is God's covenant-keeping name. And when we use that name, we are referring to and God is referring to himself as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. We know in John chapter 8 that Jesus takes on that name. He says, before Abraham was, I am. We also know from Jeremiah 23 that Yahweh calls the righteous branch of David, Yahweh our righteousness. So in the Old Testament, we have one of the most definitive texts on the deity of Christ in uh, Jeremiah 23, which is a sermon I'd like to preach someday in the future. So please turn with me to the book of Samuel. We're going to try to tackle chapters 16 through 20 today. 16 through 20. Now Luke did a wonderful job of showing us the uh, sin of Saul. We know that he was supposed to kill and wipe out the Amalekites. Uh, he doesn't do that. He even captures their king, keeps him alive, Agag. Samuel's very upset about this, so Samuel kills Agag by cutting him to pieces. And we also know that Saul sinned by offering sacrifices and he's not a priest, right? So he's in big trouble. So God, in his sovereignty, Yahweh, rejects Saul. And now we are at chapter 16 and we have Samuel the prophet and he is grieving. 
And like a good prophet who really does care about the glory of Yahweh and is concerned for Yahweh's people, he is concerned that they have entered into a dark time like the judges again. We were given a king, he has failed us, and now the nation of Israel is vulnerable, and he's truly grieving, as he should. But then Yahweh says in verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now you need to see this really, understand, Bethlehem is a very important town. Who is going to be born in Bethlehem in the future? Jesus Christ. That's very important. And then we have this figure, Jesse, who is the father of eight sons. And Samuel is going down to select one of his sons to be uh, the king, the true king of Israel. Look at verse 6. And when they came to Bethlehem, Samuel, the prophet of God, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Samuel, a man of God who follows Yahweh, is now going to be selecting, and he thinks it's based on the outer man of Eliab, which is basically what they've already done with Saul. Saul was a head taller, and he was a good-looking man. He's going to be our trophy representative for our nation, and we want somebody strong, big, and good-looking. And Eliab, being the firstborn, probably was tall, and Samuel said, this has got to be God's chosen. But look what the Lord says, Yahweh says in verse 7. But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord, or for Yahweh, sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We have a very important uh, teaching right here about Yahweh and the wisdom of Yahweh. Notice that it is Yahweh that is doing the rejecting of Saul and the selecting of David. He's totally sovereign. You need to understand that the aim of Samuel is not specifically to look at the various characters that are represented here in the story that are true human beings like Saul, David, and uh, Jonathan. The aim of Samuel is to look at the glories of Yahweh and his sovereign power and control in all that takes place and even his providence, which will come through these narratives. The Lord says, Yahweh says to Samuel, do not look at the outer man. This is the wisdom of Yahweh. He sees through the externals down to the character of the man. So what matters to Yahweh is the inner man. What matters to Yahweh is character, integrity, humility. Is the man repentant? Does he have a broken and contrite heart and spirit? Is he full of faith? Does he trust in me? 1 Kings 8.39 says, For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. 1 Chronicles 28.9, David says to Solomon, his son, For the Lord, or for Yahweh, searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. 
Now, this is terrifying if you don't know God, if you don't have a relationship with God. Because Yahweh, the creator of the universe, knows everything about you. He knows all the way down to your motives. He knows the secret sins of your life. He knows everything about us, and that's terrifying. To be laid bare before him who we have to do, the creator. He knows. But the good news is, for those of us that know Yahweh through his son, we know that God cares for us intimately. If you think about Psalm 139, he knows when we come in and when we go out. He knows when we lie down, when we rise up. He sees all and knows all, and that's very comforting that we have a God that knows us intimately and cares for us intimately, personally, close. We don't worship and know a God who is far off. We know that our Lord is intimate and that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Acts 13.22, Paul says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And that's 1 Samuel 13.14. God desires for a man and a woman to love him and to desire to obey him who seeks after him, whose heart longs to be in relationship with him. Look at verse 13. Actually, verse 12. So all the boys are paraded before Samuel, all seven of them, and God rejects all seven of Jesse's sons. And they come to the end of the line there, and uh, something's wrong. Somebody's missing. And Samuel says, wait a minute, do you have another son? And it's almost as if Jesse's like, Oh, I forgot about my youngest. Uh, yeah, he's out in the field over here tending the sheep. Uh, Samuel says, bring him now. Get him over here. I'm not going to sit down until he gets here. Verse 12, and he sent and found him. Now he was ruddy. I'll never forget as a young boy, I for some reason thought about Rudy from the movie, uh, 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 Notre Dame movie, a short little guy, but I, I realized I'd, I read that wrong. Ruddy just means red. It's also used to describe Esau. So he had this glowing red, healthy-looking skin about him. He kind of like was a beacon of health, evidently. And he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, isn't this interesting? The outer man is what's being described here. And what the author is saying in the book of Samuel is basically, you know what, whether he's good looking or not, that doesn't even matter. What matters is the heart, but nevertheless, he describes David this way. He says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of the Lord, rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, the anointing of David is very important. To anoint was to consecrate. It was a formal way of inducting certain leaders into office. It was the coronation of kings and priests, according to Exodus 30. And in a theocratic society, the anointed individual was separated for God's service and chosen by him. When God was the authorizing agent through the means of a prophet, the Spirit of God would accompany that chosen person. 
Dale Ralph Davis says this, Yahweh both chooses David for kingship and equips him for the work. He appoints his servant to task, to a task, but at the same time gives him what he needs to fulfill that task. So the Holy Spirit comes on David and he is now going to lead and guide David. And that's how we know that David was anointed or chosen by God. The Holy Spirit was with him. But now look at verse 14. Now the Spirit, capital S, of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is the only time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where we see that the Spirit leaves a man. And this is tragic. This is so tragic that God would leave. Yahweh would have his spirit leave. And then, sovereignly, would send a harmful spirit. Now, this would be a demon. This would be uh, something that would completely uh, mess with Saul's mind. It would put him in a state of torment. And this was happening regularly. So David is being... Uh, recognized and anointed here just with his family and Saul is going to be rejected and the spirit is going to leave him. It's a sad situation. Uh, and we'll end with uh, this section. So, so Saul is at this point uh, being tormented and notice the providence and the sovereign hand of the Lord here. Who comes to minister to Saul? One of his servants recommends this shepherd boy who happens to be a warrior, he says, but he also plays an instrument, the lyre. And so Saul asks for David, who's been anointed, but Saul doesn't know he's been anointed, to come and minister to him directly in his house. Look at verse 23. And when the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed him. That's amazing that God, Yahweh, would have David come and minister to Saul. Now there's three things I want to just mention to you at this point. Why does the anointing of David matter? It matters because the greater and better king is going to come from the line of David. Jesus Christ is called the son of David, and he's the anointed son of God. That's what the word Christ means. It means anointed one. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, the actual Davidic covenant says this, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's what Yahweh says to David. Fast forward a thousand years, we come to the book of Matthew. And Matthew uses this phrase, the son of David, many, many times in his letter or in his book. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is the true and better anointed king who comes from the line of David. And that is very, very important to understand. That was point one. We move on. Point number two, Yahweh's sovereign victory. Yahweh's sovereign victory. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. The Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel, uh, we have a, this battle scene that is setting up. We have the Philistines versus the Israelites. We're going to have Goliath versus David. And then we have the pagan gods, Dagon, and all the others versus Yahweh, the one true God. And 14 miles from Bethlehem, we have this battle scene. It's the Valley of Elah. And we have in the valley, next to the valley, we have two hillsides. And on one hillside are the Israelites. And on the other hillside with the valley in between is the Philistines. And look at verse 4. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath. Now this is very interesting. What's taking place here? Basically, we have a representative. We have a mediator. In a way, we have a, a, a military federal head that represents the nation and the armies of the Philistines. And what's going to happen is there's going to be trial by individual combat. Combat between two individual fighters. And whichever warrior wins, the opposing uh, enemy will be defeated. So Goliath is a representative of the Philistines, but we have a problem with the Israelites. There's no mediator, no representative. And notice the daunting size and description of Goliath. If you look down uh, in verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, it says that his height was six cubits and a span. That is nine feet, nine inches tall. Okay, very, very, very tall. Huge, huge man. Uh, the armor that he wore basically weighed as much as I did when I got married to Jill. At, at six foot one, I was so skinny that Jill, when she would hug me, she would hug herself because her arms would wrap all the way around because <laughs> I was so thin. But the armor weighed about 140 pounds that he would wear upon himself. And then the spear alone weighed almost 20 pounds, the head of his spear. He was a giant of a man. Now, I had the opportunity in 2001 to go meet another very, very large man by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. In 2001, he was a basketball player on the Lakers. Uh, my cousin was on the Lakers. And I got to go see him play at the Staples Center, and we rode down in his Hyundai. It's really old Hyundai. And my wife was with me, and she was eight months pregnant with Joey, and also my brother went. And when we got to the Staples Center, you drive down, and there's a parking lot underneath the Staples Center for the ball players. And I'll never forget, we drove down this little uh, alleyway, driveway, and we stopped, and we have to let the valet park the car. Okay, very important, and it made sense to me after I saw the sheer value of all the cars that were in there. Uh, millions and millions of dollars in Ferraris and Bentleys and all that kind of stuff. And here we are in this little, like, $3,000 Hyundai. And uh, 
So we get out and the, I felt bad for the valet driver because he had to get into a Hyundai, but he did. And he parked it right next to Phil Jackson's $500,000 Ferrari. Uh, amazing. So anyways, we go and watch the game. It was a great time. And then we came back to wait for the car to be valeted to us. And guess who's standing with us? The rest of the ball players of the Lakers. And right behind me is one of the biggest men I have ever seen in my life, Shaquille O'Neal. And my cousin says, uh, hey, Shaq, this is, my, uh, this is my cousin, John. And this is his wife, Jill. And, and uh, he noticed that Jill was pregnant. And he reached down, Shaq did this, he reached down and he palmed her tummy. <laughs> and at this point, I mean, you're touching my wife, how dare you? You know, what can I do? I don't have a sling with me. Uh, anyways, he reached down, he palmed her tummy, his hand wrapped her, I mean, it was, and he says, I think it's going to be a baby boy. <laughs> and at that point, he could have picked her up and done a behind-the-back pass. <laughs> now, I'm six foot three, and I was, I was in awe of how big of a man he was. But Goliath is two and a half feet taller. And this giant of a man is going out in front of the armies of Israel and taunting. It says six times he, the word defy is in this section. He is taunting and mocking Israel, their armies. Saul, who is there, because kings went out to fight, and that's one of the sins of David in the future that we're going to look at. He doesn't go to the battle, and that's when he falls into sin with Bathsheba. But Saul is there, and this Philistine is taunting not only Saul, Israel, the armies of Israel, but he is taunting and mocking Yahweh. And it says that he does it for 40 days. And what is, what, in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. But then, notice the providence and sovereignty of God in verse 17. Jesse, who has three boys at the battle line, Iliab, the oldest, and the other two, he says, I want to find out about my boys and I want to feed them. So David, who was going back and forth from serving Saul and from uh, also working on the farm with the sheep, uh, Jesse sends him with food to go check up on his brothers. And providentially, the Lord brings, Yahweh brings David up into the battle scene. Okay, skip down to verse 26. And this is very profound. This is how we know that David was a man after God's own heart. For 40 days, Saul and the, and the Israelite armies are not even considering or thinking about Yahweh. It's as if they are, they are living their lives uh, like, like uh, practical atheists. How dare they, after having seen all that Yahweh has done for them, but they are dismayed and in fear, and they're not thinking about Yahweh. But here comes David. He steps into the scene, and he says, Verse 26, and David said to the men, it's the first time David talks, by the way, in the narrative. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Here it is. And takes away the reproach of Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should be 
that he should defy, there's our word, the armies of Yahweh. And the people answered him and, and said the same, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, the oldest son, hears this interaction with David and these other soldiers. And look at his response. Now, Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. That word kindled there in the Hebrew, the, the imagery is a snorting bull with nostrils of flame. He has just lost it, lost his temper at his brother. And look what he says. Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Here it is. For I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David says, wait a minute. What have I done? Was it not but just a word? And David leaves. And I want to focus on that thought. We already saw principally that God knows, or Yahweh knows the hearts of men knows them intimately, knows everything about who we are and what we've done. But here, Eliab is saying that he knows and he presumes on the heart of David and basically assigns evil to his brother's heart. And this was very convicting to me, personally. Because I ask myself and I ask you, how many in this room, including myself, have presumed to know the motive of why a fellow brother or sister said what they said or did what they did. And we presume on that. We think we know when a certain thing happens, they did it because of this. And you know deep down, you just know that they meant evil. And see, what's going on here is we're seeing the wisdom of God up and against pride and folly. We'll see it in Saul, and we see it now in Eliab. What must Eliab have thought after moments later he sees his younger brother, golden boy, if you want to call him that, good-looking, ruddy, handsome, shepherd boy, step out and then cut the head of Goliath off. Eliab in that moment probably said, I was opposing God's Yahweh's chosen man. I was opposing Yahweh. See, that's what pride does. Pride and jealousy loves to accuse and judge. And often we are opposing the people of God and hurting our own brothers and sisters when we presume upon them. He doesn't know the heart. Only God knows the heart. Moving on. So David, this, this dialogue that happens between the brother and these other soldiers comes back to Saul. And Saul wants to talk to David. Verse 32. And David says to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Now notice the opposition here. We have Goliath that is defying Israel and Israel's God and all uh, is against David. We have Iliab now against David. He's presuming evil upon his own brother, and now Saul is going to oppose this. Look what he says. You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth. Again, it's all about stature, the outer man. And he, Goliath, has been a man of war from his youth. 
But notice David, who is a man after God's own heart, who is more concerned about the glory of Yahweh than anything else, says in verse 34, and then verse 36, David said, verse 36, your servant has struck down, he's talking about himself, both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. He has defied Yahweh. And David said, the Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul says, oh, you better go. And he sends him. This is tremendous. This is so awesome. Why does David believe that he is going to defeat Goliath? And this is profound to me because David already talked about this today, which shows me the nature of the Holy Spirit and even helping us lead this church in a worship service. Because God has already worked in David's past. David has faith in the future because of the work that God has done in his past. I like what Dale Ralph Davis says here. Looking back in faith enables David to look forward in faith. And this is instructive for the people of God. Faith is sustained in the present, for the present, as it remembers Yahweh's provision in the past. David is, is remembering back fighting lions. These are formidable cats with, with sharp teeth and, and claws. They can pounce upon you. They can overtake a, a man in a heartbeat. And not only a lion, but he, he's killed bears. And when they stand up upright, if, if it's a grizzly, it could be almost nine feet tall. And David has defeated those enemies in the past. And he says it's by the hand of Yahweh. Every time. It's not about David's victory. In David's mind, because he has a heart that's after Yahweh's, it was always about Yahweh giving him the victory. This is not primarily about David, it's about our great God. And so we need to, as believers, remember that we should have monuments and Ebenezers in our minds of all the great things the Lord has done in the past. And we should be believers who worship God, who thank God for all that he's done for us. One of the reasons why we need to be praying people is because we can look back and see how God answered prayer and give him glory. Which is, this is what David is doing. It's about the glory of Yahweh. I want to remove this reproach of Yahweh by slaying this giant. So Saul says, okay, fine, you're going to go. Let me give you some armor. David says, no, I can't use this armor. All I need is my sling. All I need is five smooth stones, and I'm going to take my staff. Verse 43, and the Philistine sees David, and he says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, and the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David turns right around and says to the Philistine, you come at me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, God of armies, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is about the glory of Yahweh. 
Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? Why does David desire to do this? That all the earth may know that there is a God, that Yahweh is in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that Yahweh saves not by sword and spear, for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hand. This is all about faith in Yahweh. It is Yahweh that guides and directs we who are believers. It is God that will give us the victory, whether it be over sin, whatever it is that comes against us. We put our faith and our eyes on the Lord and he's the one that wins the battle for us. And so... Uh, Goliath moves towards David, but David runs towards Goliath. And he grabs out of his pouch a smooth stone, puts it in this sling. He does a couple whips as he's running. This is pretty profound. You're running towards this giant enemy. And as he's running, he lets go of that one end of the sling. And that rock comes flying. Who knows how fast. But look what it says in verse uh, 49. And the stone hit him in the forehead and sank into his forehead. It didn't just hit him in the skull. It shot into the brain and probably did massive damage. Now at this point, Goliath falls. And I got to believe the Philistine army says, ah, he's tripped again. Uh, he's, a, he's a big guy. It can happen. He's got all that armor on. He'll get back up. And that reminds me of the first time that Dagon fell. And they went and they brought him back up. But then David, in verse 50, runs over to the Philistine, stands above him after he takes out Goliath's sword, stands over him, and in one giant cut, cuts his head off. And I'm sure David took his head and held it up. And immediately the Philistines knew, right then and there, that they were defeated. And that reminds me of the second time that Dagon fell. He lost his head. So the Philistines' God lost their head. Now their champion, their representative, has lost his head. And now they're going to be wiped out. And by the way, Luke was talking about last week how as the people go, or as the king goes, the people go. Well, Goliath just lost his head, and now the Philistine army is going to go. But David, being a young man of God, fulfills scripture here in Leviticus 24 verse 16. What happens to a blasphemer when they mock God? According to Leviticus 24 16 they're to be stoned to death and David fulfills Leviticus 24 16 by stoning Goliath with one smooth rock fulfilling scripture. Now we jump down to chapter 18 and now I'm going to go really fast here okay 18 through 20 this is all about uh, Saul's decline and David's growth as it relates to the killing of Goliath we need to think about this as we look to Christ the truly anointed one as David uh, anoint, was anointed by Yahweh he, and he defeated Goliath. So Christ, who was anointed, the anointed son of David, defeated Satan. 
And this is a picture of what's coming, of what's coming ultimately with Satan. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children, uh, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death Christ might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. So Christ was anointed to come that he might destroy the devil. Colossians 2.15, starting in verses 13 and 14. I'll paraphrase. God makes us alive. He forgave us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What else happened on the cross? Verse 15. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. And this was all fulfilling Genesis 3.15. For I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. For he, Christ, the anointed one, shall bruise or crush you, Satan, your head. And you, Satan, shall bruise Christ, his heel. And as anointed King David was a lowly shepherd boy, who defeated Goliath by the power of Yahweh, so a lowly shepherd, a sinless lowly shepherd, the son of David, will ultimately defeat Satan, hell, and death on the cross. For Christ is king. Our last point here, Yahweh's sovereign love. So we see Yahweh's sovereign choice. We see Yahweh's sovereign victory. And now we're going to be looking at the sovereign love of Yahweh by preserving David. And Yahweh uses a, a young man who happens to be Saul's son to show lo loyal love to David. Not only does he use uh, David's uh, friend Jonathan, he uses David's wife, Michal, who happens to be Saul's daughter, and then he directly in intervenes as well to protect David. Look at verse 1 of 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. There's three things here about the loyal love of Jonathan towards David. Again, this is Saul's son. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That's the first thing that we see. After interacting with David and getting to know David, he loves David. Verse uh, number two, Verse 3, then Jonathan, he ratifies this love or demonstrates this love by offering a covenant or making a covenant with David, which they would take an animal, cut it in half, and then he and David uh, would walk between that animal. And basically Jonathan was saying, uh, may I be like this animal if I ever break my covenant with you. So he makes a covenant. And then verse 3, this is so important. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan, I believe, is a man after God's own heart. He loves Yahweh. And he is recognizing right here in this moment that David is Yahweh's anointed. Because Jonathan is the heir of the throne. He's the prince but what is he doing? He is willingly taking off his princely robe and giving it to David. 
which is basically saying, David, I love you, I honor you, I'm going to be loyal to you, and ultimately, it's because I'm loyal to Yahweh, and I love Yahweh. And again, we see here that there, here's another man after God's own heart. But Saul, Saul starts his murderous desires towards David. Let's read on. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse uh, 6. And they were coming home from the battle with Goliath, David returning from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs. And this is what they sang. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul did not like this. I don't even think they were really necessarily putting Saul down. They weren't putting David up against Saul, per se. They basically were lumping them both together, saying, look what Yahweh did through them. But nevertheless, Saul, being a selfish, prideful man, becomes very angry. And there's our word that described Iliad, the snorting bull. Immediately, he has anger in his spirit. And this saying displeased him, verse 8. And they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. If looks could kill, Alistair Begg says. Right here, we have the beginning of Saul now wanting to kill David. But we've got to fly, so we're going to really fly right here, okay? So he eyes David with, with looks that could kill. And again, verse 10, a harmful spirit comes on Saul, but guess who's in his presence? Ministering to him still, the anointed one, David. And at this point, he loses his mind even more so. He's acting like a madman. He's a crazy man. We're talking about Saul here. And so he takes his spear and he tries to kill David twice. And David flees. Verse 12, why? Saul was afraid of David because Yahweh was with him. And he departed from Saul. This is against God. This is against Yahweh. This is what's happening with Saul. In opposing David, ultimately he's opposing Yahweh. And likewise, as, as human beings that are sinful, every time we sin, we may sin against somebody else, but ultimately we are sinning against the Creator. And when we don't turn, when we know that Jesus is the Holy Son of God and He's the only means of salvation, yet we harden our hearts, it's as if we are rejecting Yahweh. We are rejecting God in our own pride. And look what happens to those who are prideful. We already saw Goliath losing his head, and we're going to see the decline of Saul and what happens to him. So, uh, just going to fly through here. Uh, read at the end of uh, chapter 18, so we can just wrap this up nicely, this little section. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, his second daughter, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was all, uh, even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan and his, his son, 
and to all the servants that they should kill David. So David was secretly wanting to put David, sorry, Saul was secretly wanting to put David in harm's way so that the Philistines would kill him. And uh, he ends up having more success. And now uh, Saul is going public with his desire to kill David. He tells Jonathan and the servants. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1, then jump down to chapter 19, verse 10. Saul attempts to kill David again with a spear. Uh, verse 11, Saul sends messengers now to go after David. But David is protected by Michal, who, by the way, he paid a bride price for her, which was 100 foreskins. He had to kill 100 Philistines. And he goes and takes his men and kills 200 men and brings back 200 foreskins for McCall, that's a great story. Read that with your family and devotions tonight. Uh, and then uh, we have McCall, this, uh, David's wife, finds out that Saul's trying to kill David, so she helps him escape out a window, and she takes an idol and makes a dummy with it. Why they had an idol, I don't know. That's another sermon, possibly. But David had an idol there, and she put him in the bed to make it look like David was sleeping there, put goat's hair on it, and the servants come, Saul's servants to kill David, and she says, he's sick, leave him alone. They go back and tell Saul. Saul says, bring him here, and uh, they find out, and Saul finds out that McCall, his own daughter, is now protecting David, just like his son. She's on the Lord's side as well. And now, at the end of this chapter, Saul himself goes to kill David, and he ends up prophesying. Okay, that's a great... You need to read that section on your own. I've got to jump ahead to uh, chapter 20. Okay, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Then David fled, fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? You ask, why was David still going into the presence of Saul to minister him when Saul was trying to kill him. It's because David really believed he was truly tormented and was a madman. And the reason why he was trying to kill David was mainly because he was losing his mind, not because of anything that David had done. But David is so concerned. He's such a godly man. He wants to know, did I sin against the king? Is there anything that I have done within my own spirit that has provoked this in Saul? He's truly concerned. And they concoct a plan, he and Jonathan, to find out if it is true that Saul does have intent to kill David. And you need to read about the plan because it's pretty ingenious. Uh, it happens during the Feast of Moons. David is supposed to be with Saul at this festival. It's a three-day festival. Um, but he doesn't show up there. He's going to go down to Bethlehem to be with his family instead. And Jonathan has... Uh, this dinner with his father Saul and Jonathan says why is it that you're trying to kill David he's done nothing wrong and in the middle of all this interchange Saul realizes that Jonathan's been protecting David and he loses his temper again he takes his spear and now he tries to kill Jonathan his own son which shows you what depravity does it gets worse and worse and worse the folly of sin what this is teaching us about Saul is that depravity leads to more depravity. Here lies one of the greatest examples of the folly of sin 
the damning consequences of sin, and the utter foolishness of pride against Yahweh, our God, and whom we have to do. So Jonathan is angry. He goes back, and he basically has this one last interaction with David. Look at the end of chapter 20, starting in verse 41. And David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Remember, this is Yahweh's chosen king. And look at all the turmoil that even David has undergone. undergone. He's weeping. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went in the city. What did Jonathan just say there? He says, who's going to be between us? Yahweh. Who's going to protect our offspring? Namely, the Christ child ultimately? Yahweh. He is sovereignly, providentially going to bring this about. Now, this is in fulfillment to Hannah's great prayer from 1 Samuel 2, verses 9 and 10. Remember when she said this? She prophesied in this prayer. He will guard, Yahweh will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off. Think of Agag, literally cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. David, a lowly shepherd boy. It wasn't by might that he prevailed. Verse 10. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Goliath loses his head. And against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. And there we have an Ebenezer. We see all of these works of Yahweh in preserving David. And this gets me to the last and main thought. As Jonathan humbled himself, go back to that initial scene in chapter 18. When Jonathan humbled himself and took off his princely robe and subjected himself to David in love and loyalty and honor, it threw me right to Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which is a chapter on humility. This is what Paul writes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the anointed one, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here we have the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh's anointed, comes from heaven, steps out of the throne room of heaven and becomes a man and he enters into humanity. And in so doing, he is subjecting himself under the curse. He is entering and coming under suffering. 
for he is called the suffering servant. And when he took on flesh and he humbled himself, he suffered. And not only did he suffer in his, his humanity for 33 years, he was holy and righteous the whole time and never sinned once. And in that humility, he willingly, as the Son of God, the King of Kings, he willingly went to the cross. And on the cross, he took upon himself an eternal weight of wrath of his Father for us. The anointed king was cursed. The anointed king was cut off from his Father. He became a curse for us on the tree. On the cross, Christ willingly took off his kingly robe of righteousness and took on himself our filthy rags, Isaiah 64. Though he was sinless, he bore in his body an eternal weight of wrath for our sins and gave us his robe of righteousness. Remember, he was under the law and he kept it perfectly and imputed to us is his righteousness for all who would believe. Christ the King was crushed for our iniquities. Christ died on the cross and took the wrath of his Father so that we, sinful beings that do not deserve it, could be made new, could be forgiven. Some of you in this room are under the terrible weight of guilt for the sins that you have committed. You know that there is a God that you are accountable to, and you know you've done wrong. And the only way that you can be made right is not by trying to clean yourself up, but looking at the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who went to the cross to bear the sins of every person that would ever put their faith in him. Jesus Christ changed places with us. We deserve wrath we deserve punishment we deserve hell for our sins and he took that upon himself and then gave us his righteousness he showed loyal love loyal love to us and we have that love for eternity if we put our faith in him for god shows his love towards us in that while we're yet sinners christ died for us and i'll end with this verses 9 and 10 after he died, after he bore the wrath for sins, he was exalted. He rose from the dead. Verses 9 and 10. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the son of David, is Lord, the glory of God to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that we could look at this historical account, this narrative, all true. It all actually happened. And it needed to happen because the anointed of David gave us and set into motion the ultimate anointing of the ultimate king, the greater and better David, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we worship you. We thank you. Thank you that you have sovereignly used the Lord Jesus Christ to bring many of us in this room to faith. And now we have your loyal love. I pray for anybody in this room, Lord, that does not know you, that does, is under the weight of their sin, that they would turn 
and that they would look to Christ, the King of Kings, for their salvation. Amen.